Well, we're going to be talking about learning from Isaac's dysfunctional family. And it's interesting, and especially, well, all throughout the Bible, there aren't glowing stories of families. It's mostly stories of messed up families. But actually, as I've thought about it, God uses it in a very powerful way to show us that that's reality. I mean, so as we look around us in life, we see a lot of messed up families, and we see even in our own families things that are messed up. So I really appreciate how the Bible comes at this uh, with a negative example, showing us not to, how, not to have a good family by these examples of bad families. And actually, a bad example can be a very, very powerful example. It can have a deep impression on us. One I often go back to whenever I speak, I have a strong desire never to bore people and to be uncreative and, yeah, to bore people, to me, that's one of the worst things a speaker can do. And one thing I always go back to when I think of that was when we were in China, Teo, when he was in first grade, we sent him to the local school, first, to first grade at the Chinese school for a semester. And halfway through the semester, they had the parent-teacher night, and there's a little classroom about the size of this half of the room, and the teacher's up front, and there's a raised cement platform, and she's got a, a stool like this, and a, a podium in front of her, and all the parents are sitting in their children's seats, and their the wooden chairs about this tall. So I'm out there sitting like this, you know, looking up at this teacher, and I'm, uh, but I'm really interested. I can't wait to hear what his teacher's going to say, and I don't really know how Chinese schools work, whatever. And so she gets up, she sits in her chair like this, and it's a wooden podium, so she puts her elbow here and rests her fist right here, and for the next 20 minutes, talk to us parents about their classroom and the different things that they do each day. And I sat in my little chair looking up at her thinking, I cannot believe this. That is the worst, most unmotivated teacher I've ever seen. 20 minutes. She never lifted her face off her elbow or off her hearing. Just told us that we start at 8.05 in the morning and then we do math. And I remember sitting there saying, Lord, help me never bore people like that. So often when I get up to preach, I, I think of that. That negative example is a very powerful example in my life. And the, the scriptures when it comes to families are that way as well. We can learn a lot from a negative example. The stories we're going to look at today are, are tragedies. It's kind of a tragic story. It's got a little bit of a happy ending. It's a movie Chinese would love. They love. Uh, I'm amazed when I was in China, the movies we'd watch just the saddest, most horrible endings. And they just love it. They just love these tragic stories. I was like, oh, that was just so depressing. But the more depressing, the more they love it. Well, they would like this story today. In our story today, I want us to look at the main characters. And I've highlighted them. We're going to briefly talk about Abraham. He's the grandfather. Okay, then Isaac, his son. Isaac and Rebekah's son, Esau and Jacob. And we know that God gave a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless him, make him into a great nation, give him a land, and through him bless all the nations of the earth. And he passed on that blessing through his son Isaac and then on again to Jacob. 
even though Esau was his older brother. But that's the, the line of blessing that we see. And then from Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, he had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the players. And it's interesting to think about. These are the patriarchs of our faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they're the patriarchs, the founding fathers of our faith. It's like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. You know, we think of them with the pride, yes, our founding fathers. Uh, but it's a humbling story as we see, wow, our founding fathers, they were flawed people. But the encouragement is we see, wow, they're flawed just, just like I am. And God had patience with them and worked with them to see their lives transform. He never gave up on them. We're going to look at several lessons. The first lesson we see in this story is that it's important that couples communicate about their spiritual lives. And we look at this in Genesis 25. This is at the birth uh, of their children. It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, what I find fascinating about this passage is we're talking about these flawed people, but here, Rebecca's pregnant with twins, and they're jostling around, and what does she do? She goes and inquires of God. She said, God, why is this happening? Okay? Originally, this was titled Isaac's Unspiritual Family. But here, look, Rebecca, this is amazing. Wow. She has this going on in her life, and her response is to go and ask God, God, what is going on? What are you doing? So in many ways, I think her example is one of, that's a very spiritual response. If you had twins, would, would, would that have been your prayer? God, what are you doing? They're jostling around so much. She takes this request and goes to God with it. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, last night I was praying about this. God um, just put this on my heart, this idea that how important it is that we stop and inquire of God about things that happen in our life and, and how often we don't. We just say, wow, that's curious or well, that's weird and go on with life. But in 1 Corinthians 14, and Paul went through this whole series in Corinthians um, last year I went through this as well, and God really spoke to me about a few things. In this verse in particular, Paul says to the Corinthian church, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening encouraging and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, a lot of time this topic really throws some people into tizzy. They get really nervous. You start talking about tongues and prophecy. 
But I actually believe we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater, that there's so much stigma about tongues that, that we get nervous about this passage and any talk of prophecy. Um, but I really like um, Wayne Grudem. He's probably my, my favorite theologian. He's written a book called Systematic Theology. Uh, and I discovered that book. Actually, I had, a, I had to take a class on systematic theology. And it was the worst class I ever took. And this professor had written his own book. It was called Theological Sentences. I can never forget it. It was so bad. Uh, but every week, we'd go to class. I'd just get nothing out of class. But we had to do a report on some of the things he said in his theological sentences and compare them with some other theologian. And I went to the library, and I came upon this book by Wayne Grudem. Well, first I came across a lot of systematic theology books are thick and boring. I mean, they're very technical. Suddenly, and so after several weeks, I came across this one by Wayne Grudem, and I started reading it. I was like, wow, this is readable. At the end of the chapter, this guy's got like songs related to the topic. He's, you know, he's brought the cookies down where you can understand what he's talking about. And I, could, I was amazed. I started finding myself reading this book all the time because he wrote so well and it was so understandable. Uh, and so he became another example of how a bad example God brought good out of it and made it memorable. Um, but he has a definition. His definition for prophecy is reporting in your own words what God has spontaneously brought to mind about a particular situation or event. So normally we think about prophecy as always being about the future. But it's about God speaking to us about some situation. It may be future, it may be present. But it's God's words and we just report them in our own words. And um, I'd encourage you to read what he's put out there. He did, spoke at a conference with John Piper several years ago about this topic of prophecy. Uh, it was really helpful to me. I'd encourage you, to, if you're interested in this, to look more. Um, but, what, but what's interesting here is we go back to this passage. He says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, some people say, well, maybe he was just speaking only to the Corinthian church needed this above all things, that they were so overemphasizing tongues that he, he wanted to, them to really emphasize prophecy. Um, and that may be to some degree, but I believe this area of prophecy is is because there's so much stigma attached to it that we've, we've missed a lot of the blessing that God wants to bring to us through prophecy. And part of it is because we have this idea in our mind that prophecy is, thus says the Lord, um, that God is giving us something holy, a message just like the scriptures. And who am I to stand up and say, God has spoke to me about crossway and blah, 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 thus says the Lord. Well, none of us feel comfortable about that. But if it's as he says, reporting in your own words what God spontaneously brought to our mind, then suddenly that becomes something, well, yeah, I can see that. I've had that happen in my life. Um, it was really interesting. And I think especially in our community groups, home groups, and in our accountability groups, this is an area that God can really bless us. Um, we saw this in, in our men's group recently. In fact, there was, on one occasion, I'd, uh, it was early on when we'd come back, I had a situation about a month before I came back that was really difficult. I had a, there was a, 
a few people that I was working with, um, just part of my time, uh, ministry to, uh, with small group leaders at a church. And uh, one of the small group leaders that I was coaching had made a mistake and not followed the procedures for starting a new group. So I wrote the other people on the leadership team, told them about it. I just found out they made this mistake. Um, and I recommended that, and I said I talked to them and told them, you know, you didn't do this the right way. But their heart was in the right place. They were really trying to do the right thing. They were trying to follow up some people that had just become Christians. And so I recommended that we let this person continue to, um, to do this because they really were motivated to do it. Well, one of the guys that was kind of the head of this group wrote an email back to everybody, and he just was very harsh, had a lot of sentences in, in all caps, and, and he was very critical of my, what I said. In fact, he said, I demand that we not do this. And uh, I, I was floored when I read it. I couldn't believe in this leadership team of friends that he was talking like this. And it, it was very hurtful to me. So I had gone and talked to him about it and thought I'd resolved it, helped him understand how his words you know, were very hurtful to me and why I had recommended that. And I was saying, you know, I, you don't have to agree with it. You can, people can go with another decision, but this is what I felt. Well, then later, another thing like this happened right before we were getting ready to come back home. And I wanted to meet with him to work it out again because he'd been really harsh in, in criticizing um, something I'd proposed. So then he, he refused to meet with me. And that was really hard. He I, you know, I was trying to follow scripture to go and make things right with this brother. And for whatever reason, he wouldn't make the time. He said he was too busy. Um, and we were leaving in a couple of days. I said, wow, I'd really like to resolve this before we go back to America. But turned out he, he just wasn't willing. So I tried to find a way to resolve it. I, um, so I was sharing this with the guys in our group. And finally, I had, uh, long and short of it, I had written it. I'd gotten in touch with this guy's supervisor, and um, the other people on the team actually had heard what was going on and admitted that, wow, that I don't know why he was so harsh and it was wrong, but they weren't willing to bring it up to him. So long and short of it, I ended up feeling God lead me, and I spent a lot of emotional energy on it, uh, but God was leading me write an email and explain to him how his actions were hurtful to me. At one point, he'd stated that his intention wasn't to hurt my feelings, so I just kind of went with that and told him how it did affect me and that I appreciate that you know, that wasn't his intention and that suggested you know, ways in the future that might be better to express his ideas and how we could work through this. And um, so right about the time I sent it, we met. I shared this in our men's accountability group. And we said, well, somebody said, well, why don't we just wait and let's ask God if there's something God wants to, to say to you. So we waited for several minutes, and then afterwards, um, uh, one person said, you know, wow, I got this picture of just a head bent in humility, that, that yeah, you need to have a real attitude of humility as you do this. Um, and then someone else said, yeah, I feel like God's saying um, that you're being a peacemaker, and that possibly he's even saying that through this, this other guy is going to learn to be a a peacemaker. And then I remember uh, at the very end, uh, Stan, he said, you know, I get this impression God said, 
just rest as you send this and that God will provide peace and make a way. Uh, and all that was very encouraging to me because I had a lot of emotional energy in that. Um, well, as it turned out, I sent that email and long and short of it, it resolved the, the situation. And, and after that, I felt peace. And I was, before that, whenever I thought of this guy, oh, I just get irked and worked up about it. But God really gave me peace. In fact, when I was thinking about telling this story, I couldn't remember all the details because God had really helped me forgive this guy. And just, it's almost to forget that it had happened. Um, so it was a really amazing thing, but I believe that, and, and we, usually, we had talked about this, that if we have a time of waiting on God, then we ought to say, uh, is this God speaking, or does everybody feel like this, what, what people shared was God, or was that just your own thoughts, or was that Satan? And in this case, uh, I think we mentioned that, I think we didn't even mention it, it was just so evident, well, that's not Satan saying those kind of things, that's, those are God's words to you, Wade. And it really strengthened, encouraged, and comforted me. And it built me up. It builds the church up. So I just want to encourage all of us that, you know, many times in our groups, our temptation is somebody shares something and we give our opinion. Well, I think you ought to blah, blah, blah. uh, But how often is that we say, well, I wonder if God has something to, to say to us about this. So I would really encourage everyone in our small groups, whatever it is, someone's sharing an issue with us, our spouse sharing some situation, to stop and say, well, why don't we just wait on God and ask God, is there something he wants to say? Um, and I, I believe that's part of this gift of prophecy. Now, many people would say, oh, I don't have the gift of prophecy. Well, you may not have the gift of evangelism, but we all still evangelize and share our faith with people on occasions. Um, So just because you don't have the gift, I think the gift is somebody that's especially uh, pronounced used to this gift and effective in using it. But we we can prophesy even without that. Even though that word sounds so scary, uh, I believe in many cases it's just a matter of hearing what God wants to say about a situation and sharing it, just like those men did in that group, to strengthen, encourage, and comfort me. And so, going back, that's what we see happening um, in this with Rebecca. She inquires of the Lord, and God speaks to her that the older shall serve the younger. Now, the problem here, though, is we read on, Genesis 27 said, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son... And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So here, he wants his son to prepare this meal of delicious food so that he can give him his blessing. Okay, and this... um, called Esau, the older son. But we just read that Rebekah, God spoke to her and said, the older is going to serve the younger. So do you see the disconnect here? God says one totally different thing to Rebekah, but yet Isaac 
is moving on, doing it the way you always do it. You bless the older son. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what happened, but clearly there's a communication problem. Either she didn't tell him what happened, or he didn't listen, or she told him and he just chose to ignore it or say, well, that's not how we do it. Our culture does it this way. But clearly, here you have a couple that are not connecting heart to heart. They're not connecting on important spiritual things. So I would ask you all, how are you and your spouse doing connecting about spiritual things? Do you know, is there something your, God's been speaking to your spouse about? Have you been listening to hear what they're saying? Do you know what that is? Has your spouse been listening to you, to what God's been speaking to you about? It's really important. And, and this negative example we see between Isaac and Rebecca shows us this is important. We need to be listening to, each, to what God's saying to us in these kind of matters. So it's important that couples communicate about their spiritual lives. That's very important. And I want to encourage you, stop this week, begin this habit of asking, inquiring of God, God, what are you, is there something you want to say to me or to this person about that situation? Because I believe many times he wants to say something, we just don't give him an opportunity. And I want to mention too, a fear many people have about prophecy too is, oh, and there's, church, there's a few churches like this that are just, everything's prophecy this, prophecy that. They've just gone way overboard. But for the most case, prophecy, people are worried it's going to become more important than the Bible and people are just going to be saying, God said this to do this and God said that and God said that. But the Bible teaches and in Corinthians it talks about, Paul tells them, test the spirits. Whenever there's a prophecy, test it. The idea is it's not always right. It's not always God speaking. Sometimes it's the person's personal thoughts. Sometimes it's even possibly Satan talking to that person, and so it has to be tested. But when we read the Bible, do we have to test each sentence and say, now is this from God or is this from Satan? No, that's the beauty. God's word is perfect. It's his very words. And so that's why you don't run into people, you know, memorize. I happen to write down those things that night that it blessed me, but I don't go memorizing them like I memorize the Bible. Uh, these prophecies, there's a danger they could become more important, but just the inherent fact that you have to test them, I think will always help prophecy be below Scripture in importance and won't overtake it. And I think that's a fear many people have, but I think it's unfounded. Lesson number two. Names have great power. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her room. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, so Esau comes out hairy. Isaac was grabbing Esau's heel. So they named him Esau, which is similar to the Hebrew word for red. Okay? And then Jacob, they named him Jacob, the word that meant he takes by the heel or he cheats, he deceives. And my question is, what were they thinking? You name your son Deceiver? 
Come on. Nobody would do that, would they? Name their son deceiver. Okay, maybe it wasn't, it's a word that has two meanings. One is grabs by the heel, the other is deceiver, but they're very much linked. It would be just like if, I think a good example would be if um, there was twins and the one was pulling the other's leg. And so the parents named him Jokester because he pulls your leg all the time. (laughs) I think it's really similar. It's this kind of, it's a word play. Okay? To be named jokester, well, that's, that's odd. It's a lot better than deceiver, but here it's this word play. Okay, so the word has two meanings. Maybe they would have offended themselves. Say, well, it just means grabs the heel. Oh, it just means pulls the leg like a joker. But clearly, it was understood. And later, what does Esau say? He says, isn't it, isn't it just right that you named him Jacob, deceiver? The meaning of this, this wordplay wasn't lost on Esau. Okay? People got it. And I think this is a powerful thing because in Scripture we see great emphasis is given to names. Abram meant exalted father. When God made his covenant with him, he began to call him Abraham, father of a multitude. Okay, Jesus speaks to Simon. He says, Simon, I call you Peter. Petros, rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, this is after Jesus has asked him, who do the people say I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're Christ, the Messiah. And he says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but God revealed it to you. And I call you Petros. And on this rock, some would say the rock is the testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. But we also see Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter was the apostle to the Jews. So God did incredible things through Peter in building his church. Now the Catholics like to use that passage and say Jesus is appointing Peter as the Pope here. I think that's stretching it a little too far. <laughs> okay, I think, uh, but we won't go into that, but um, that, that I think is going way too far in understanding it that way. Jesus, his name, meant the Lord saves. And all throughout Scripture, we see that importance. And I believe that's why many cultures, the Korean culture gives great emphasis to naming children. Even America, I think we give less emphasis, but it's still there. Often we look up the meaning of a name. And it's important. We got that from the Bible, that our identity is often wrapped up or can be wrapped up in our name. Okay? In our family, Kia, we looked it up. We liked the sound of it first, and then we looked it up, and it meant new beginnings. And Anne, she was named after my mom, Anne, who spells it A-N-N, but Anne meant grace. And we have often said to Kia, Kia, you're going to be a person that God uses to bring new beginnings of grace for a lot of people. You're going to speak to them about God's grace, and they're going to believe and come into his kingdom. That God's going to use you that way. How do you think she feels when she hears that? Does it build her up? Does it give her hope? Does she feel special? Yeah. A name does that. Okay, Teo is for Spanish, Timoteo. means honors God. Keith means battlefield. We've told him many times, Teo, you're going to honor God on the battlefield. That You'll have battles in your life, but through them, you are going to honor God. 
How does he feel about that? Yeah. And we try to make it a purpose to, to remind our kids of their name and the meaning. And it's a way of bringing blessing upon our children. Also, Teo was named, uh, Helen and I had been on a short term, and one of our, the members on the team was a guy named Tim Shea from UC Irvine. Uh, and he was on staff with InterVarsity there. Just really neat guy. We got to room together in the same little, we worked with the Nahuatl Indians, and we had a house about this big, and we slept in the corner on wood planks. And uh, I, I, during that time, I got to know Tim really well, and he, we just loved him. And at the end, of, we called him Timoteo at the beginning because we were calling people their Spanish name, and then um, Timo for a while, and we ended up calling him Teo, and we started liking that name. And so we often tell Teo, too, about, well, you're named after Tim Shea. His name was Teo when we were down on that trip. And Tim's a great guy. You'll, he hasn't met him yet, but so you'll love it when you meet him. He's just so full of joy. He's so happy. He just loves people so much, and, and you're going to be like uh, Tim Shea, whom you're named after. So names can be such a rich source of blessing. But they can also harm and hurt people in China, okay? Well, starting with Jacob, I don't think his name helped him, okay, deceiver. But we've seen, I said, would it, who would do that? Well, people all over the world do that for some odd reason. In China, we had met people who, girls that were given a boy's name. I, I would say, what's your name? And they would say it, and they say, oh, it's a boy's name. And you could see on their face the disappointment. Why were they given a boy's name? Because their parent wanted a boy. So how does that make that girl feel? Her whole life, every time she says her name, Satan uses it as a reminder that you're not what your parents wanted. You weren't, at birth, you weren't, you were a disappointment from your birth. What a horrible thing. And you can see it on their face when they tell you their name. It's, and then, because they tell, they would tell me, oh, it's a boy's name. We met somebody whose name meant next one a boy. When translated, that's what their name meant. Yeah, that just really built them up, didn't it? So this does happen. Names are important. They capture our identity. So Jacob, the deceiver, he cheats. Okay, and, and we see that happening in his life. Okay, he cheats Esau of his birthright for a bowl of soup. Okay, because he's so hungry, he says, what good is my birthright now? I'm going to die if I don't have food. And so he says, first swear to me that you'll give me the birthright. And he does. Then, later, he, with Rebecca's help, again, that's Jacob's wife, who favors um, Esau, or Isaac. I'm sorry, I'm going to mix it. Jacob. So he, he, together they work to deceive him and get the firstborn blessing. Is it a coincidence that he was a deceiver? And we'll see later, there are many other times where he deceives. Okay, in Revelation, it says, To him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it, only known to him who receives it. I think I've talked about this before. In heaven, everybody's going to get a stone, and there's going to be a name on it that's special to us, and no one else is going to know about it. 
and it's going to be a blessing to us. I, I don't know what that name would be, something that God and I know. It connects us. Maybe it's a name related to a place where we showed great faith during our life or did some great act of compassion. But again, it's a name. He puts this name on it, and it's going to be a blessing to us. And it's also a sign of intimacy, this name. Wow, God gave, is going to give me a special name in heaven. You know, sometimes we fear, oh, there's going to be millions of people in heaven. I'll just be lost in the sea of people. No, God's going to give you a stone that's just special with a name just for you. Names are powerful. To him who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God, and I will also write on him my new name. Okay? A name is wrapped up in our identity. Well, how do we use a name to bless? What if your name's not so special? What if your name was Wade? Do you know the meaning of Wade, the deep meaning? It means to walk through water about knee high. Okay? Okay? That's a real blessing in my life. Wade. Okay? No, actually, Wade means advancer. My parents they didn't even know that when they gave it to me. And it's interesting, many times God uses a name even though when the namer doesn't realize it. And God's spoken to that. He, I believe God's spoken to me that he says, Wade, I'm going to use you to advance my kingdom. I say, I'll, may it be, Lord. Uh, let me be your servant. Um, nicknames. This is one thing. What, what if you, did, you named your child and their name maybe isn't so special, just kind of ordinary? Well, sometimes people use nicknames. We read this great book called The Mysterious Benedict Society. Anybody ever read that book? Our whole family read it. Wow, what a cool book. There's an African-American boy in the book. His name is George Washington. But they don't call him that. They call him Sticky because he's got a fantastic memory. So his nickname is Sticky. And they get in all these situations and Sticky will remember something or some fact that helps them unravel and figure out how to get out of this situation. So this nickname is a blessing to him. Okay? So sometimes we can do that with our children, is give them a nickname. Also, the character of the person. For example, Kia Ann. She was named after my mom, Ann Harlan. So we'll say to her, you know, Kia, you know, you're my, my mom, your grandmother, it was just so committed her family. She loved her family and served them so much. You're going to be like that. You're going to be a faithful mother someday. And you're going to be hardworking like she was. And she also was so, she's so good at striking up a conversation and befriending people. She said, you're, you're going to be like that, just like Anne that you're named after. So, regardless of what names you have or you've given your children, there are ways to take even a bad name through the use of nicknames or um, you can even redefining Helen's Chinese name. Um, hai Luen means sea. Her dad was from Shanghai. okay, And then Luen, which has to do with relationships. But they never really talked a lot about putting them together. But we see now God has blessed Helen to have a sea of relationships of people that she'll influence for Christ. Um, also, renaming in Africa. When people become Christians, they often take a Christian name. And they'll say, and they'll say oh, my Christian name is Paul. Okay, And with that, it's the idea, I love this guy, Paul. I want to be like that. Now, my middle name is Warren, my dad's first name. And 
I count it an honor to carry my dad's name. And every good thing in my dad, I ask God, Lord, reproduce that in my life. So names are powerful, and this story helps us see that they can be of great power for good, and they can be used negatively as well, but God can transform it. Third lesson is we see favoritism, comparison, deception, lying, and manipulation ruin families. Okay? And in this story, they're all intertwined. In Genesis 25, it says that Isaac favored Esau because he was a man of the outdoors, a hunter, and it, in particular, it says he liked the food that he made. I mean, it's kind of a shallow thing, but that's the primary reason he liked, it appears that he liked Esau. Rebecca favored Jacob. So there's comparison here, there's favoritism. It's a recipe for disaster. And I want to challenge all of us in your relationships with especially your family and your children. Don't play favorites. The Bible says God does not show favoritism. Okay? And, what, and the story is so clear of what happens when we do show favorites. There was sibling rivalry of an incredible degree. After uh, Isaac, Jacob steals Esau's blessing, what's it say? It says, when the time of mourning for my father, or for uh, my father is, when the time of mourning is done, I'm going to kill my brother. That's what's happening when there's comparison, when there's favoritism. It sets the children against each other. Um, I, this passage was really helpful to me. You know, we're really close with Bo and Cindy and spent a number of years in Jingxi with them and their daughter, Mia, and I always just had this special connection. Um, I don't know, we just really clicked. And then when we moved to Nanning, like an example, was one time I came, it had been like two months since I had seen their family. And when I came back, I knocked on the door, and Lauren ran up, gave me a hug. Bo gave me a hug. Cindy gave me a hug. Mia wouldn't come hug me. She was mad at me because I'd been away for two months. And so she, it took about 20 minutes before she finally came up and would talk to me. Okay? But, and so we would do a lot of things together, but the Lord spoke to me. He said, Wade, be careful that you don't play favorites, that Lauren needs to know you love her too. And so I began taking extra time to tell Lauren, oh, I love you, Lauren, too. If I'd say that to me, I want to make sure I say it to Lauren. Uh, because favoritism can destroy families. So here's the result. Okay, we already talked about Esau took his birthright, his blessing, then he wants to kill Jacob. Then it says, um, after this, okay, so after this, uh, Rebecca finds out that Esau wants to kill Jacob. So what does she do? She goes and tells Isaac, oh, I, these Canaanite women around here, I hate them so much. Please send our son off to our relatives to get a to uh, find a uh, to find a wife, and so then Isaac agrees to that. Was that really the reason? No, she wanted him to get out of there so that Esau doesn't kill him. She says, "I don't want to lose you both." Okay, but again, 
what does she resort to? She resorts to deception with her husband. Instead of communicating about it, she tries to manipulate the situation. And it, and it works. It appears to work. Isaac then sends him away to the relatives to find a, a spouse. And so Jacob has to flee because Esau wants to kill him because of this favoritism for one child and the other. And what's really tragic about this story, we just see this web of manipulation, of lying, of deception, of favoritism, of comparison. And especially with Rebecca here, she, she doesn't want to lose both of her sons. You know, this has turned so bad. Um, so she manipulates Isaac to send Jacob away. And Rebecca is the, never mentioned again in Scripture. Her name just stops. And it appears as though she never sees Jacob and his children, her grandchildren, again. So she pays a, a hefty price for this manipulation. And later when Jacob and Esau meet again, it appears that he was coming from the area of Sair, and so that he had even moved away. So it's even possible after this that she didn't even see Esau and his children again. It's not clear, but that's quite possible. Her name isn't mentioned. So it's a very powerful negative example of what happens when there's deception, lying, comparison, and manipulation. Lesson four, sin habits are often passed down from one generation to the other, but God wants to break them. Okay? And this story, it's not a happy story. It, you, if, when you're reading the Old Testament through Genesis, while you're maybe looking for a hero, there, there's none to be found. Everyone is flawed. Just when something starts looking good, sin rears its ugly head again. We see here, these generational sins. Abraham, in Genesis 12, passes his wife off as his sister to Pharaoh. Then later in Genesis 20, he does it again. He passes his wife off as his sister because he he's fearing for his own life, that they'll kill him so they'll take it and take his wife because she's so pretty. Okay, is that a godly spiritual response? No, not particularly. But God ends up blessing him which is encouraging that even despite our many sins and the ways we screw up, God doesn't give up on us, just like he doesn't give up on Abraham. Then later in Genesis 26, guess who? Jacob passes his wife off as his sister to the king Abimelech's men, in this case, and he gets rebuked by the king for it. What are you doing? One of my men would have might have slept with her. Okay. Same problem, isn't it interesting? It's repeated generation after generation. Jacob tries to trick Esau out of his birthright and blessing. We already talked about that. Then Rebekah tricks Isaac to get him to send Jacob to her uncle Laban's. Instead of telling him she's afraid that he's going to get killed, she, makes up, she says this about, oh, I hate all these Canaanite women. I'd hate for him to marry one of them. Send him away. So again, more deception that happens generation after generation. He gets to his uncle Laban, and the uncle Laban tricks Jacob into marrying 
his daughter Leah when it's Rachel that Jacob has fallen in love with and is asked to marry her. But he, at night, he slips Leah into the marriage bed and wakes up the next morning to a shock that, whoa, this is not Rachel that I've just slept with. It's her sister. And then he exchanges seven more years of work and changes his wages many times. So we see this runs in the family, this deception. And then Leah and Rachel compete for Jacob's love through bearing sons and sometimes even giving up their maidservants so that they can have a son. One of them, the son is born and he says, oh, God has vindicated me because a son is born. And you just see this competition and it's, it's causing all this friction between them. Again, favoritism happening here. Who's going to be the favorite wife? Okay. Favoritism ruins a family. Then Jacob ends up leaving. God tells him to leave, but doesn't give instructions on how to do it, but he just gets up in the middle of the night and leaves. And Laban comes after him and says, what are you doing leaving with my daughters and my, child, my grandchildren without telling me? He's rightfully upset. But again, and then doing it, he says, and not only that, but you took my gods. Now, he acknowledges Jacob's God, that there's a God, but he also has his own God still. And he says, give them back. And Jacob says, well, if anyone in, among us, ha- we don't have them. If anyone does, that person, may they, may they be executed. Well, little does he know that Rachel is sitting on top of him on her, I think it's a camel she's on, in the camel bags. And they go and search everything. And what does she do? Another lie. She says, oh, I don't have the gods. She said, oh, I'm so embarrassed, but it's that time of month. I can't get up and let you look in the bags where the gods are. So another lie. What a mess. Lie after lie after lie. But we can relate to this. We all know of families, maybe even our own, where we see there are certain sins. Is it alcoholism? Is it loss of temper, poor use of finances, conflict between the husband and wife, poor communication between the husband and wife that gets passed down generation after generation after generation? The Bible makes it so clear in this story that that happens. That's the reality. But there's hope that God does bring transformation in people's lives. And often it's slow, but he's working to bring glory to himself by transforming families. And we see lives changed in the Bible. Lesson five, God wants us to move from self-reliance to reliance on him. And this is in Genesis chapter 32, and I want us to look at that. We, we just read this. This is here, Jacob, after some say 20-some years, Jacob and Esau are going to meet again. And Jacob is shaking in his boots because he knows he has wronged his brother. And his, the report comes that his brother is coming with hundreds and hundreds of people. And what does Jacob think is going to happen? Esau is going to come and wipe him out for all the evil that he did to his brother. So how does he respond? Well, if we'll look here in Genesis 32... 
Okay, it says, verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, Now if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he he divides up the group. He, he gets clever. Okay, I got a strategy. I'll have two groups. They attack one, then this one will get away. Then later we read that he sends them. A, he has a plan to send them ahead with gifts to offer to him. This cattle uh, and and many gifts, servants, to to appease him in his anger. But all of it is his man-centered thinking, his own personal strategy. Okay, we see he finally begins to turn toward God here. But his first inclination was what? i got to come up with a plan. Okay, here's what I'll do. Okay, I'll give him these gifts, and hopefully that'll appease him. He won't be so mad. He'll see that I want to make a friendship with him. Okay, and then he, he makes his plan, sends him out, and then he goes and talks with God. And then it says in verse 13, So he stayed there that night, and from... What he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Okay, so he leaves out these presents. Okay, and then uh, that he's going to give him, to placate him. Then in verse 22, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and he was left alone. So he had his family around him. Probably there were people there that would have guarded them as well. But then eventually, the last thing he does, he finally he sends them away to be by himself. And here, the passage that Stan read, he encounters somebody and he wrestles with them all night long. And we learn from this passage, he says, he calls the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. So he's wrestling with God or the, um, and when God gets ready to go, he just doesn't let him go. He says, no, don't go until you bless me. Okay. Finally, he realizes all these plans I've made are just human effort. It's not until that I, I know he finally admits God without you, this is going to fail. And he humbles himself before God, and he realizes, I can't let go of God. God is my only solution here. And he holds on to him. And God injures his hip so that for the rest of his life, 
he limps and is reminded of this critical moment in his life and in the life of the people of Israel. And God renames him Israel, which means wrestles with God. And every step he takes the rest of his life, there's that pain in his hip, but it's a beautiful pain of reminder that I can only overcome through reliance on God. Not my clever scheming. That has not worked for me. And I learned that. And so he goes and he meets his brother. He bows down before him seven times, but Esau runs up and hugs him, and they're reconciled. Okay, God does it. Not his clever thinking. And Jacob begins to learn. And from here, we see Jacob's sons still continue to do some deception, but there seems to be a definite turn in Jacob's life, okay? Where now he remembers that moment. He remembers that, wow, I need to cling to God and look to God first in things. His sons get jealous of Joseph. They think about killing him. They sell him off, send him off, and they lie to Jacob. The deception continues. So I love the realism of the Bible. Jacob has a breakthrough here, but it, every, everything doesn't suddenly change and everyone in the whole family stops lying. No. And we know that's how life is, isn't it? And isn't that more how our Christian journey is? We have a breakthrough and there is real change, but there's still other obstacles ahead. Some things don't change yet. That's going to be down the road. The Bible paints such a beautiful, realistic picture of that. But God hurts him for his own good as a reminder. And isn't that amazing? I am so blessed by that thought. We're called the people of Israel. Uh, some people say, oh, we become Israel, the new Israel. Well, God still has a plan for the Jews, and, and they're his chosen people. He'll still use them. But we also, in a sense, are the new people of God, the chosen people of God to be in his kingdom. And our name means perseveres and wrestles with God. Struggles with God is the name of us. We're the group of people that struggle with God. Isn't that a beautiful description of what our life is like here on earth? When we get to heaven, we're not going to struggle with God anymore. And for eternity, things will be the way we want them to be. But while we're here, we struggle with Him. But if we resort to manipulation, our own clever thinking, it doesn't work. And just think for a moment. Are there areas in your life where you are result, res, resorting to manipulation or your own clever thinking? Maybe it's at your job. Maybe there's somebody who is wanting to be promoted. Realize you have skills of leadership and that you can see yourself doing a good job at a higher level. And Maybe you're doing some things that... Uh, You've figured it out, oh, if I do this and make friends with this person and I brown nose a little bit over here, I can get that position when that person leaves. Or, or if I tell about this person's mistake, maybe they'll get fired and then I'll take that position. Or some way of manipulating, using your own thinking. Instead of saying, God, I have this desire to to use my gifts in this way. Lord, what do you want me to do? And God may leave us, lead us to build a relationship with somebody, but not in a phony way, in a real way. God's ways are righteous. Um, and God may lead us to do some things that will help us get promoted. But we're going to God and asking Him to do it. We're not 
relying on our own human thinking. We're not trying to manipulate circumstances. Don't forget what happened to Rebecca when she did. She lost everything she prized because she tried to do it in her own human strength. So finally, Jacob learns to trust and rely on God and not himself. So here are the lessons that we learn. Okay, we need to talk about our spiritual lives. We need to realize names have great power. Use that in your children's life, in your own life, in the lives of people that you meet. Learn the power of names. Don't rely on deception and manipulation and favoritism. Realize it will ruin your family. If you see that in your family, take decisive action now. And you can stop these generational sins that is happening in your family. We see them in our family. And we pray, God, let ours be the generation where this sin stops. And you bring transformation. And instead, what's going to be propagated generation after generation is a love for God, a desire to, to be honest and to do things right, to have integrity, to follow God. Let us persevere and wrestle with God. I want to end with this song written by Harry Chapman. Some of you may know. Um, it's about this idea of generational sin. As you listen to the song, there's some phrases here. Cats in the cradle, it's about a famous childhood game. Silver spoon, years ago, babies were given silver spoons when dedicated to their church. Little Boy Blue was a children's story. Man on the Moon was a famous children's poem. They're all phrases about little babies and childhood stories. So listen with me to this song and the powerful message about generational sin and how it can devastate.
And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so clear about life and how it happens and how sins are passed on from generation to generation. And Lord, we grieve like the father in this song whose son turned out just like him with all of his faults. And Lord, we all say, Lord, may this not be in our families. May I not pass on my sins, my weaknesses to my children. Lord, help me to learn like Jacob that I need to wrestle with you, not give up and persevere and find your way through. And may we believe, Lord, that you want to bring change so that what is passed on generation to generation is righteous living. And how even when we sin, to reconcile, to ask forgiveness, and to move forward. Lord, we know that's your desire for us. But we just commit anew today, Lord. Help us to be the generation that stops these generations of sin. But Lord, we can only do it through you. We call out to you, Lord, help us. We need you. Thank you for the amazing stories that paint reality in Scripture and in our lives. We pray this all for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.